All right. Well, had an exam on Monday, right? Yay, boo, I don't know. Grades are posted this morning. As of this morning, I posted them. I actually had most of them graded as of Monday afternoon, and then I took the rest of them home and didn't finish them until yes, last night. But the grades are actually posted there. I'll give them back to you on Friday, because there's still two people I'm trying to get a hold of who have who missed Monday and who I haven't seen in a while, so I don't know if they're intending to drop the class. So I'm waiting on those two, and I'll give everything back on Friday. So but if you want to see your grades, you can go on D2L and look. If you want to not be surprised, you know, you, if you want to be surprised, you can wait till Friday when I hand them back. The average was about 67%, so it was not good, but there were a number of, there were, you know, there were seven or eight that were, you know, 80% or above. So there were a number who did well, and there were a number who didn't do so well. So it was kind of a mix. So now you've got to wonder which group you're in for the next. Or go peek and look. But they, they are, all the grades are up there for you, though. Go oh, you're going to go check. <laughs> got to go check real fast, right? OK. So I will give you those back on, on Friday. Um, solar observations due today. At least one more observation is what I'm looking for for the grade for the five points for that. So any more you have is good. Yes? Yes, there is a Dropbox for D2L submissions. You do have to attach a document. So you have to put them in like a Word document and attach it. So, yep, you can submit it on D2L just as easily. I'll take a look at them. And I should have all of those back for you on Friday as well, so you can know how you're doing there. Uh, homework 4 also due on Friday, or is due on Friday. Home, other is due today. Homework 4 due on Friday that I gave out, what, last week sometime. And then the iTunes quiz is up and ready, available through uh, the 14th. And that covers the pictures through last Friday, the last, the last month's worth of pictures, essentially. Next week, no class Monday. So don't come in Monday. We're not here. Um, but Tuesday, we do have a quiz. What Tuesday? Tuesday, we have a quiz, right? No. You have no classes on Tuesday, either, if you have Tuesday classes. Wednesday, there is a, qu there is a quiz that will be in class. That will cover a section of chapter 10. And we'll be through chapter 10, should be through most of it, if not completed, on Friday. So we should have most of that, most of that caught up. And then the second article review due the end of next week. And again, if I didn't remind you, you're welcome to use another one of the articles that I gave you. If you want to choose one of those, you're also, of course, welcome to come up with your own if you find your own. Questions? Questions? All right. Picture of the day for today then. ARP 94. Most objects in astronomy are listed by catalog designation, so not very many things are given names. Um, they're usually a catalog. The ARP catalog is a catalog of what we call peculiar galaxies. So galaxies that don't really look quite like the normal, typical galaxy that you see. Usually when you see a galaxy, you see this nice central bulge, and you see great spiral arms swirling around it. When you look at a lot of other galaxies, we see what we call that are peculiar. They're oddly shaped, um, in this case distorted. And here we're actually seeing two galaxies. So you actually have two galaxies here, close together in the center of the image. One is a spiral galaxy. Here you can see some of the spiral structure, but not not near as pretty as some of the others that we've, that we've looked at. The other one is more of an elliptical galaxy, kind of merging into it. Typically when we see these peculiar galaxies, they're the result of a galactic collision, of galaxies colliding. So you actually see some materials maybe strewn out up here, 
faintly, some down here that gives it this peculiar shape. Now galaxies do collide. In fact, quite often we see lots of evidence for galaxies colliding. A collision of galaxies is not like a collision that we're used to, right? We're used to a collision like whack, it happens and it's done. A galaxy collision takes millions of years, tens of millions of years for them to actually collide. So we're not going to watch, the, we're watching these galaxies collide, we have one snapshot of it and that's all we'll see in our lifetimes, you know, from generations before to generations after, that's all we're ever going to see because the distances are so vast that they're traveling that it takes a very long time for the collision to occur. Also when galaxies collide, they don't smash together, right? When galaxies think of a collision, you think of, you know, two billiard balls banging into each other and bouncing off. Galaxies don't do that. When they collide, they essentially pass right through each other. Their galaxies are so much empty space that the odds of any two stars in them actually colliding are incredibly tiny. So when the galaxies collide, the stars just pass right by each other, although gravitationally they'll get thrown out and you'll get streams of material thrown out this way and that way because of the collisions. But you won't actually see two stars collide together and explode. Could it happen that one in a billion time? Well, you know, certainly maybe when two galaxies are colliding and this, the central areas are dense enough, you might get the occasional stars that collide. Most likely they're going to pass right by, right by each other and only be affected by the gravity of the overall galaxy. So we'll talk more about galaxies and galaxy collisions, but it's very common and in fact we think it's how the galaxies actually formed, how our galaxy formed starting out as little tiny small galaxies and slowly coalescing, slowly gathering other material in. So collisions, some of the material would eventually stick together in the collision. So you'd grab more material and more material and the galaxies would sort of cannibalize each other and slowly grow in size over time. And we see that when we look back at the earliest galaxies, they're all little tiny small galaxies. We don't see any big large galaxies like we see um, today. We see only the very, only very, very tiny galaxies. So sort of gives us an idea that that's perhaps how galaxies have formed. Questions? There's some material that has been ejected out that, but a possible star might form an ejected material. Yeah, the ejected material could be, could be a combination. It could be stars already. It could be gas clouds. And certainly you would get, um, in you would get extra star formation when the gas clouds are compressed. So you could throw gas, gaseous material out of the galaxy. You could throw stars, stellar material out of the galaxy. But some of that gas, as it compresses and you started co coalescing, you would actually be able to form new, new, you would be able to form new stars. So yes, you would get extra star formation. And in fact, the, the spiral galaxy there is also what's considered an active galaxy, meaning that it emits a lot more energy than a typical spiral galaxy would. So the collision is not you know, not just distorting it, but it's also causing it to emit more energy, most likely feeding that black hole that's buried at the center. Anything else? No? No? Yeah? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I wrote a term yesterday about rogue planet. Never heard, have you heard of anything like that? A rogue planet? Yeah, I heard, I saw, I heard, briefly heard that. Typically, typically means that the planet has escaped from its star for whatever reason. So if a planet was orbiting a star and something were to happen and cause that planet to be kicked out of the solar system. 
could be a gravitational interaction. You know, something happens that disturbs the orbits and you know, Earth goes too close to Jupiter and Jupiter flings it out of the solar system and it's just traveling randomly through space. So that kind of thing can, 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 ha can happen. But very difficult to detect because they're tiny. When you have a planet that's not near a star, it's not emitting any light. So it's very difficult to actually detect. But that's what they mean, at least, by a rogue planet. It's kind of something that's escaped from the solar system. It could affect the orbits if it came through. It could distort the orbits gravitationally, depend on exactly where it passed through and how much mass it had. So it could actually do something like that. I mean, technically, it could collide. Most likely, it would just pass through the solar system and not do much of anything. But you know, the million and one chances do happen, you know, once in a million times. Yeah. Is, is it possible for rogue stars to exist, or is it just, are they just so gravitationally bound inside the? Uh... Well, a rogue star would have to be something that had escaped from like a cluster or some a cluster or escaping from a galaxy. So it would be a little harder to yeah. to see that in you know the sense you know if you have a star traveling between galaxies out there between the galaxies, that would be something be something like that. Yeah. Like two binary stars mm -hmm. orbiting one another around the black hole, right, and they're spinning around. Okay. And the one gets grabbed by the black hole, and the other one gets flung out. That's a rogue star, right? You could get something like that. I don't know. Uh, depending on the exact motions of the time, yeah, you could you could do that. You could also do you know it. What I mean, right? Yeah. I saw it on a documentary. Like yeah. The other way they do it, and it doesn't involve a black hole, could be two stars. One goes supernova. That star goes supernova and explodes. All of a sudden, where's its gravity? It's gone. Right, so this that star where it was is going to keep going in Newton's law. Right, going to go in the same direction at the same speed it was going at that instant. So you could get a a star like that, you no, know, but but it's still a star traveling through the galaxy. But you might find it moving in a different direction than most of the other stars. So we do, and we do see stars like like that that are you know high velocity stars. They're moving very quickly relative to everything else in the in their area. So you can look at that as a rogue star as well, but it would still be part of our galaxy, actually getting it flung out of the galaxy and being able to then detect it is a little, little harder. Anything else? All right, all right, back to stars. Let's see, we were looking at brightnesses. So we were looking at the magnitudes of the, st of the stars and uh, let's see, I gave you last time, we grouped them into uh, groupings originally, that there were stars of the first magnitude, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. So the original magnitude grouping that was given thousands of years ago just said the brightest stars were stars of the first magnitude. So these are the brightest. The faintest stars that you could possibly see with the naked eye were sixth magnitude. Now, this is what we've been using for thousands of years. It can, be, it can be confusing in a couple ways. One of which is that the brightest stars, when you start giving these numbers, when we actually start calculating magnitudes today, and we say that we have two stars and one has a magnitude of 3.25 and another has a magnitude of 1.61, say, just two random numbers picked out there, the brighter star is the smaller 
not numerically. So this is actually the brighter star. So the smaller the number, when you see magnitudes, the smaller the numbers you see, the brighter, the brighter the object is. The bigger the numbers get, the fainter the object will become. And that's what the chart is showing you here on the left-hand side. Here's the brightest object. The brightest object we can see in the sky is the sun. And that has a magnitude of negative 26.7. So extremely bright. Very small number, negative, so even smaller than zero. That's as small as anything, it's the brightest thing that we see in the sky. The next thing we'd see would be the moon. The moon would have a, brightness, a magnitude of negative 12.5. Still very bright. Venus gets to about negative 4. Sirius, the brightest star, is about negative 1. Then typically the stars go from Sirius being the brightest to the limit of about a sixth magnitude, which you can see from a very dark site. And then if you go further, if you see use binoculars, use different size telescopes, a 10-inch telescope, a typical nice amateur telescope, would get you down to a magnitude of 14. And then a bigger telescope, a one-meter telescope, you know, mirror that big, would get you down to a magnitude pushing down to 20. Four-meter telescopes get you down even further. The Hubble and the very largest telescopes are getting down to 30th magnitude, 31st magnitude. So seeing very, very faint objects by comparison. How much fainter are they? So how does an object that is first magnitude compare to an object that's sixth magnitude? You know, is it, it's a factor of six. Is it six times brighter? Like when you talk about temperatures, you have a star that's 3,000 degrees and a star that's 6,000 degrees. Well, one is twice as hot. It's easy to figure out. Magnitudes don't work that way. Magnitudes, it's actually a logarithmic scale, which is the way your eye responds to the light. So that means that between each of these magnitudes, it's a factor of about two and a half times brighter. So if you have a third magnitude star and a second magnitude star, the second magnitude star is two and a half times brighter than the third magnitude star. A first magnitude star is two and a half times brighter than that second magnitude star. And that's the other number that's given there. If you're looking at a first magnitude and a sixth magnitude star, here, these are 100 times. Six magnets, five magnitudes, going from one to six, is a factor of 100 times in brightness. Now you can do that if you take two and a half times 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 two and a half, and you multiply those out, you're going to get something very close to about 100. So it's about 100 times, so when you're looking at five magnitudes in difference, you're looking at 100 times the brightness difference that we see. So if you were to go from first magnitude to sixth, that's 100 times brightness. If you were to go another five magnitudes down to 11th magnitude, that's another 100 times in brightness. That means going from first to 11th magnitude is 100 times 100, or 10,000. So. Again, I'm not expecting you to go through all the calculations for these. I like you to know kind of that there's two and a half, factor of two and a half between each pair of magnitudes. It's nice to know that there's a hundred, factor of a hundred in brightness between five magnitudes. But I'm not going to have you do any detailed calculations going through, you know, 
what's the difference in brightness between these two. We could certainly do it, but I'm not going to have you do those. But I want you to know that it's not just quite as simple. You can't look at a 30th magnitude star and a 5th magnitude star and say, oh, it's six times, six times the magnitude, it's six times fainter. It doesn't work out that way. It's a lot, it's a lot, lot fainter than you would otherwise think. And it's similar to like the Richter scale, right, for earthquakes. You've got a, you know, what, you have a 9.1 and a 9.2. Well, the 9.2 isn't just a little bit stronger than the 9.1. It's a lot stronger than the 9.1. Or when you jump from an 8.5 to a 9, there's a big, big difference as you jump up that scale. There's the same thing in brightness. Jumping up just a few magnitudes here, you know, going from the full moon to the sun, well, there's a big difference in the brightness there. You can go out and stare at the full moon all you want, right? Even if you wanted to, go, you can't stare at the sun during, at noontime, right? Even if you wanted to go out there and stare at it with your eye, you couldn't. It's just too physically too bright. That's not that much difference in, in magnitude. I mean, it's only, what, 14 magnitudes? It doesn't seem like it's all that big of a difference, but it's incredible difference in terms of the actual brightnesses that we see. Alright, so two things. Again, it's not a linear scale. It's what we call a logarithmic scale. It's how your eyes respond to the light, so it's how we naturally see it. And it's backwards. So when you see big numbers, you're talking about faint objects. When you see small numbers, negative numbers, you're talking about very, very bright objects. Okay, so that's where we're doing brightnesses. Then we're on to temperatures. And I've given you this a little bit before. There's Orion on the left-hand side. Right, nice, nice winter constellation to be able to see. And we have a couple of stars there. In fact, you're quite familiar with Orion right now after the last lab. Right. Too familiar with it? Okay. You have Betelgeuse in the upper left-hand side, and you have Rigel in the lower right-hand side. If you're up early in the morning or late at night, go look for it. It's out there right now. You can see it. But, and you'll actually notice that if you look at Betelgeuse, it's got a reddish tinge to it. If you look at Rigel, it has a bluish tinge to it, so there's actually a different a color difference between those two stars. And that really tells us the temperature of the star. At least it'll tell us which is hotter and which is cooler. So the hotter, the bluer a star is, the hotter it is, the higher its temperature is. And think about that in terms of the wavelengths that it's emitting. The higher energy you have, the shorter wavelengths you're going to be able to emit. So Rigel has a much higher temperature than Betelgeuse, and it can emit a lot more violet, ultraviolet, and blue light. So that's going to be what dominates it when we look at it. So we're going to see that as a bluish colored star. Betelgeuse is much cooler, about half the temperature of the sun. So it's going to emit most of its light, emitting some blue light, some green light, but most of its light is going to be emitted in the red and the infrared portion of the spectrum. Now on the right-hand side, there's a whole bunch of stars, right? And you see that there's some that have a bluish, bluish tinge to them, a few scattered around there. You see some that look a little red, and you see a few here. There's one there that looks extremely red, extremely cool stars, that you're seeing a wide range of temperatures, from some of the very hottest stars to some of the very coolest stars, and all sorts of things in between. So looking at it, just looking at the stars gives us an idea of which stars are hotter and which stars are cooler. We have to do more measurements in order to be able to get actual temperatures for them. Is Rigel uh, in a giant stage or is it relatively young? Rigel is, I believe it's classified as a blue, blue giant or blue supergiant. 
Smaller than something like Betelgeuse, a blue supergiant is not near as big as a red. Red supergiants are the biggest stars that exist. But Rigel is a, very, is a rather large star as well. So it's, it's a big giant supergiant star as well. So how do we figure out the temperatures? Well, we look at the spectrum. So you look at the energy that it's emitting across the visible and into the infrared and into the ultraviolet portion of the spectrum. And if we recall, any object, a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas is going to emit a continuous spectrum. And it follows the black body curve. So a star at 30,000 degrees will follow this curve. A star at 10,000 degrees will follow a curve that looks very similar, just shifted a little bit towards the red portion of the spectrum. A little bit cooler star, so it's going to peak further off. A little bit further down, if you go to a cooler star, again, it's just, the curve is the same shape. It's just shifted a little bit towards the red because it's emitting, because it's a much cooler temperature. So the light that it's emitting is primarily in the red portion of the spectrum. So what that means is that if you're to look at these two stars, so if you're to look here and how much, in this case, how much yellow light it's emitting, and you look at how much blue light it's emitting, it's emitting a lot more yellow than blue, and even then a lot more red than yellow or blue. So if you looked at this star visually, it's emitting all of those wavelengths. It is giving off red light and blue light and yellow light. But it's primarily, most of the light it's giving off is in the red part of the spectrum. And it's going to make it look a little bit redder. Alternatively, if you have a star that's a lot hotter, you're looking in the visible part of the spectrum is in this portion of the curve. It's peaking way out here in the ultraviolet. That's where it emits most of its light. But it's emitting this much blue light, this much yellow, this much red down here. And again, primarily what you're going to see from it is the bluer light just because that's what it's emitting the most of. So that's where we're going to see those colors. But we could use something like this. We can actually make measurements. And we can actually make measurements. You don't have to measure this entire spectrum. Because of the way it works, you've only got to measure it in two different ra ranges. And what astronomers do is they measure in the blue part of the spectrum. And they measure in the yellow part of the spectrum. And they look at how bright that star is in each of those two. So how bright is it in the blue? How bright is it in the yellow? If I compare those two and actually get a number, I can then convert that directly to a temperature. Now I'm going to go through exactly how that's done a little bit uh, probably, by, probably on Wednesday. I'm going to go through a little bit more on that when we come back on Wednesday if I don't get to that Friday. But there are direct ways that by measuring at just two points, don't need to measure that entire spectrum, we've only got to measure two points, we can determine the temperature and determine whether the star is 3,000 degrees, Right? Very red. We can tell by looking at it, but is it 3,000 or is it 4,000? You know, we don't know the exact number just by looking at it. We can then determine, just measuring two points, we can then determine what the temperature of that is. This gives you kind of a range. This table is giving you a range of the temperatures that you can see from about 3,000 degrees to from Betelgeuse. Very reddish color. You get stars that look orange, yellowish, white, blue as you go up to about 30,000 degrees. So you can go from about 3,000 to about 30,000 degrees in temperature. So stars can range by about a factor of 10. Sun's in the cooler part of that range. Is that referring to surface temperature? That's the surface temperature, yes, thank you. That refers to the surf. what's the temperature we see on the surface. 
we can't directly measure like a core temperature. We can make calculations to do it, but we can't really see that temperature directly. So this just gives you some examples of the range of colors that you're going to see here. That's typically what we saw in that last picture. And these are just some of the stars that happen to have those colorings. Betelgeuse is well known as a very red star. Rigel is known as a blue star. It's about 20,000 degrees, pretty hot, but not one of the hottest stars. There are actually even hotter stars in Orion that exist. So when we take the temperatures, uh, we actually do some, we actually take the temperatures and use that by looking at the spectra. The temperatures, the temperatures tell us a lot about the spectra of the stars. And the spectra give us a way to classify and define different types of stars. So what astronomers have done was to make up a grouping of stars and look at their spectra. Right? Just look at the spectrum of the stars. Look at the lines that appear. Right? We looked at those lines a while back. We saw the bright emission lines. In stars, there are absorption lines, but the process is still the same. So we look at those and we see, look for patterns. And we then classify them as O stars, B, A, F, G, K, and M. Boy, that makes a lot of sense, right? Why didn't we just go A, B, C, D, E, F, G and make it make sense? Well, they did. Actually, that's how it was originally done a little over 100 years ago when stars were first being classified. There were stars that didn't have many lines in their spectra and had very strong hydrogen lines. And those were classified as A stars. As the spectra got more and more complicated, they went down through B and C and D and E. It was classified at first just by how the spectra looked. So how everything looked. There was no physical understanding of what was going on. It was just, oh, the, all these spectra look the same. They all have very strong hydrogen lines. So the hydrogen lines are super strong. So those are class A. Well, why not pick it out there? It makes sense. That's what we were looking at. As the hydrogen lines got weaker, we went to Bs and Cs and Ds. You notice some of those have since disappeared. And then so on down to the M stars. But the, what we found later was that this really corresponds to temperature. When they were first being classified, Again, it was just based on how they looked. When we found out that it was based on temperature, we found out that those A stars were sort of in the middle. The O stars were actually even hotter. And the M stars were cooler. Some of the other classifications kind of got merged together. So you combined certain classifications. So C's and D's started to disappear and sort of merged in with the other ones. And things got rearranged just to make it make physical sense. So now we actually have a temperature sequence that O stars are the very hottest type that we see. Then the B's are a little bit cooler. A's, F's, G's, there's our sun in there. K and M, down to cooler and cooler stars. So now it makes physical sense, but it doesn't make alphabetical sense. So in terms of trying to remember it, you've got a you got a little bit harder memory instead of saying, well, they're A, B, C, D, E, F, and G stars. Now they're O, B, A, F, G, Ks, and, and M stars. So right now it's really it's just a classification based on the temperatures. Hotter stars, the O stars, cooler stars, the M's. And they look, we classify them just based on how their spectra look. And here's a couple of examples here. So here's an example of an A star here. 
And if you notice, this is one of the, where's the hydrogen line over here? That's kind of off the edge. But the hydrogen lines are about the strongest there. And where are the other ones? Hiding in there. A couple in the blue here kind of reach their peak. You know, there's hydrogen right there. Hydrogen kind of gets to be its strongest. That's why those were classified as A's. When people looked at a whole bunch of these, thousands upon thousands of these spectra, you found all these ones with very strong hydrogen lines. So they were the class A's. As the lines got a little bit weaker to one side or the other, they were classified as a slightly different, a different type. Once we refound the temperatures, then we were able to figure out an action. Once we found really temperatures and found that this was related to the temperatures, we were able to rearrange them so it was something that actually made physical sense. But what we see when we look at the stars is a difference in their spectra. We see in the very hottest stars, we see hydrogen lines, and we see helium lines, and we don't see much else. You don't see carbon, you don't see the iron lines, you don't see all these magnesium, all the other things that are labeled down in these lower elements. You don't see them. Pretty much everything here is hydrogen, helium, maybe a little bit of other stuff. It doesn't mean that's not there. Pretty much every star, the composition of every star is exactly the same. It's all hydrogen and helium. So 98, 99% of it is hydrogen and helium, and the rest is everything else. The reason you see the different lines is the temperatures. So helium lines, for example, you see some helium lines up here and you see them here. You don't see any helium lines when you get down here. Helium is a very stable element. The electrons don't like to be excited. It takes a lot of energy to push them up. When you have a very cold temperature, there's just not enough energy. That star is not putting off enough energy to excite the helium. It's still there sitting in the star. It's just not glowing. We don't have the right temperature to cause it to glow in helium. Same thing with hydrogen. Hydrogen, where was that hydrogen line? Right in here. So there's a hydrogen line. It gets very weak up here in the hottest stars. There's too much energy. You can overexcite an atom too. If you take that atom and strip all the electrons off of it, well, if I strip all the electrons off a hydrogen atom, all I got is a proton. If there's only a proton there, in order to see these lines, I need that electron jumping in between the energy levels. If there's no electron there, and you just have a proton, what's jumping between the energy levels? Nothing, right? So if there's nothing there, it's not going to emit any lines. So if you overexcite the hydrogen atom, the lines get very faint. Most of the hydrogen is ionized. The electrons have been stripped out, and you're not going to be able to see anything. So that's what's happening up here. The hydrogen lines are getting weak, not because there's less hydrogen in an O star. Percentage-wise, it's exactly the same as it is here, as it is here. Doesn't change. But you're, you're overexciting it. You've stripped all the electrons off of it, and you're not going to see it anymore. At the A stars, you're just about perfect. 10,000 degrees is about the perfect temperature to excite hydrogen. Gets a lot of that hydrogen excited into higher energy levels, and the electrons are jumping back and forth and emitting a lot giving us a very strong hydrogen line. Again, there's no more hydrogen there than there was in any of these other stars. It's just that it's at the proper temperature to excite it. That's what's happening with the rest of these. In certain temperatures, it's real good to excite the calcium atoms. Some temperatures, it's real good to excite sodium atoms. When you get to iron atoms, stars like the sun. When you get down to the coolest ones, you're, you're getting a lot of molecules. 
Okay, molecules, mo multiple atoms stick, stuck together. So uh, some stars you might get, um, one is titanium and oxygen stuck together. Very common molecule in stars. You don't get it in the very hot stars because if you have two atoms stuck together, bound together, and you've got really high temperatures and everything's moving around real quick, they get ripped apart. So they can't stay bound together. When you have a very cool temperature, they can remain bound together and they can actually give off a lot of lines. So when you see these, you see a lot of molecules here as you get to these very coolest temperature, temperature stars. So what we see in terms of spectral lines is telling us about the temperature is not telling us really anything about what the stars are made up of. If you go through and there are ways to calculate, each of these stars is pretty much made up of exactly the same stuff. Here's one more table just kind of showing where those lines occur. This is from your textbook, chapter 10. Um, where do we see, what lines are you going to see the strongest? These are the same. Here's some familiar examples of those stars. What are you going to see? In the very hottest stars, you see ionized helium. Okay, helium we can ionize, right? Helium is two protons and two electrons. So we can take off one of those electrons and there's still one left. Hydrogen, you can't do that. You take the only electron off, there's nothing left. So once you ionize hydrogen, you're not going to see anything. But you can ionize helium and then trying to excite that last helium electron is very hard. Because it's even tighter bound than the two were before, it gets even more tightly bound. So trying to see ionized helium lines requires very, very high temperatures and we only see those in the hottest stars. You also see elements that have been ionized multiple times. All right, you have a carbon atom. Carbon has six electrons. So you could see carbon with no ele all electrons there. You could see it with one electron taken away, two electrons, three, four. Each of those gives us a different spectrum. Each of those, as you take away those electrons, requires higher and higher temperatures to be able to see it. So when we look at these very hottest stars, we see things like helium that's been ionized, um, heavier elements that have been multiply ionized, many times, several electrons removed, and you see very faint hydrogen lines because it's all been ionized. There's nothing left. It's just a bunch of protons sitting around that are not going to be good at absorbing photons. As you get towards cooler temperatures, you change, you get some helium lines, you get regular helium, neutral helium. As you get a little bit cooler, you get heavier elements that have been ionized maybe once, and the hydrogen lines are getting stronger. At 10,000 degrees, the hydrogen lines are about at their peak, at their strongest. Helium lines are getting pretty faint. You don't see much in the way of helium in stars of 10,000 degrees or less. And as you keep going down, again, you're still seeing some heavy elements. You're starting to see some neutral materials. So things like you know, iron, uh, nickel, things that are actually you know, neutral have all of their electrons with them. Hydrogen is getting fainter and fainter and fainter as you see as you go down this. You're going to see hydrogen very, very faint lines when you get down to 3,000 degrees. And you start to see when you get down to the very coolest ones that the molecules start to come up. The very coolest stars actually have a lot of molecular lines, so their spectra get much more complex as you get down to these lower temperatures. So nice simple ones when you're at those very hottest stars, much more complicated spectra when you look at the coolest stars. But that's how they were originally classified. Again, the OBAFGKM up here 
was just at how they looked. What kind of lines did you see in them? We see hydrogen lines, we see helium lines, we see sodium lines, and we classified them based on that on what was visible there. Okay. All right, sizes of stars. How big do stars get? Well, we can see the disk of one star for sure, the sun. Uh, here's another one. If we want to measure how big a star is, Betelgeuse is a very large star. There's the Earth's orbit for comparison. So, you know, you put Betelgeuse in our solar system and we're orbiting inside it. We'd be inside the surface of that star, giving how, by idea of how big that is. And that's not the biggest star that exists. But because it's relatively close, what is that, uh, 800, 1,000 light years, something like that away? Pretty close for a star, and it's so big, we can actually measure its size. It's one of the few stars you can actually measure its size to. Most stars, when you look at them, even through the most powerful telescopes, even with Hubble Space Telescope, you can't see them as a disk. You still see them as just a point of light. Because even though they might be larger than Betelgeuse, they're so much further away that we cannot actually see a disk to them. So the sun is one example. Betelgeuse is another where we can actually see the size of it. But most of them, we cannot, we cannot measure those sizes directly. So we've got to come to indirect ways to try to measure the sizes. There are still ways to figure it out. Yuck, right? But there are ways to go ahead and calculate it. We can, lo we can look at things like we can measure easily, like the temperature. We can look at the luminosity, something we have a way to measure. And if we measure the luminosity and we measure the temperature, there's part of an equation there. But the luminosity depends on the size of the star, how big the star is, right? A bigger star is going to be brighter. Right? Make a star 10 times bigger, shouldn't it be brighter? And it's going to depend on the temperature. Depends even more strongly on the temperature. If you make a star hotter, it's going to get even more bright because it's giving off a lot more energy. So if you know the luminosity of a star and you know the temperature of a star, well, we can figure this out. This comes from the magnitude and the distance. This we can measure based on the colors. Then we can calculate the radius. So we can look at things like giant stars, how big are they? There would be stars that are 10, 20, 50, 100 times the size of the sun. So significantly bigger than the sun. Dwarf stars, our sun is one of those. Our sun is classified as a dwarf star. And their radii about from a little bit more of the mass, from a little bit more bigger than the sun to even smaller. Anything smaller than the sun would be classified as a dwarf star. And then there are supergiant stars that have at least 100 times or more the size of the sun. So we classify them in a couple different ways, but we can determine that. Again, we can determine those sizes, figure out roughly how big they are by figuring out their temperature. That's not too hard to get. And by figuring out their luminosity, how bright, how bright that star is. And again, recall, luminosity does not mean how bright it appears to us in the sky. Luminosity is how bright it is if we put it at some standard distance. How much energy is it really emitting to compare so you can directly compare it. If we just look at how bright it is in the sky, we don't have that distance factor. It could be very bright, but very far away. It could be very faint and very close to us. They'd look the same. So luminosity puts it at that standard distance and measures how much energy it's really putting out. You know, each square meter of that star's surface, how much energy is it putting, is it putting out? Do you have any idea what the biggest star is? 
what the biggest star is. Good one. Let's go ahead and do that. I'll come back to this in just a second. Yes, it is. I have the video. I have a video for it here, so I was going to go ahead and put that up here. Let's do the sizes one. I think I probably did this. I might have done this last time. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Um, let's see. Let's talk about different sizes here. So, how big are the objects? So, how big are the objects in our universe? So, this will actually end up with the largest star. But try to give you it gives you a little bit better of a idea of a comparison of what things are. So, there's our moon to start off with. Mercury. Mars, work through the solar system. There's Venus coming into view. There's our Earth. Moon's already disappeared off there. Here we are. Oh, big jump there. This one from the Earth to Neptune. Big, big jump. Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are about the same size, so they're not included. Jupiter, we're down to a little speck. We're getting down to be a little speck down there. There's our sun. That's a dwarf star, don't forget. That's a little one. Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Can you even see us anymore? Pollux, one of the stars in Gemini. Arcturus, now we're up to the red giants. Our sun's kind of disappearing. Aldebaran, an even bigger red giant. There's Rigel, blue supergiant. Blue hypergiant, even beyond supergiant, there's actually hypergiant stars. But you notice how big the red ones get. Antares, Eusephii. Red supergiant. And there's V.Y. Canis Majoris, the largest known star. Red hypergiant. And what does it do? The little comparison here, how long would it take you to fly around it? There's our Earth. We're not much of anything next to that star, are we? Diameter of 2.8 billion kilometers. I don't think you can imagine it, but you want to fly around the surface, so make an orbit around it right at the surface if you could in an airplane. 1,100 years to fly around it. Hmm? Yeah? So, and is that the largest? That's the largest known star. So, what else is out there that we haven't discovered yet? That's the largest known star. So what else could there be out there between all the hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy and all the hundreds of billions of galaxies? You know, what's out there? Hmm. <laughs> so, since you yeah, asked, perfect timing. So, no, I didn't turn. I did not turn the sound on. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a YouTube one. You can go find it. You can go search for that. If I turn on the soundtrack, then I got to turn off the recording, so I can't talk over it. I can't, I can't broadcast somebody else's thing. So, oops, we're not going back to that, are we? So that gives you an idea of the sizes there, and really says that you know our sun is giant for us. It's gigantic compared to the Earth, but compared to these other stars, the sun is actually incredibly tiny. So that kind of gives us an idea of what the difference in the sizes are. There are stars that are you know, a fraction of the sun's size, a quarter, a tenth of the sun's size. There are stars that are hundreds and even thousands of times the, sun, the sun's radius. So much, much bigger. Yes, sir? So what determines the sun, like a sun's heat? Because there's obviously stars that are absolutely humongous. Mm -hmm. The temperature is less. Why would a larger star not have a higher temperature? Why would a larger star not have a higher temperature? Um, as you go through 
the higher, the higher stars, they're expanding. As you expand them, they're going to cool off, typically. So typically, the larger stars would, when a star expands, a star like the sun will eventually become a red giant. And as those outer layers expand, they're going to cool off and going to drop the temperature. So not the temperature really isn't directly, you know, directly related to the brightness. It does. The, more bright, the hotter a star is, the brighter it's going to be. That's kind of what it's saying up there. But it also really depends on the size as well. And if you make that star hundreds of times brighter, but half the temperature, you're still going to be a lot brighter star. Okay. All right. So different, a lot of different sizes. There are a big range of sizes for the stars. And there, I think the video showed that a little bit better than the, just the image did. That's why I wanted to put that in there. But this goes, this goes down to some of the smaller stars. So there's the sun. There's Jupiter. Um, there are actually stars that are you know, comparable in size to Jupiter. More massive, but comparable in size. Barnard star we mentioned last time um, is about two-tenths the size of the sun. Proxima Centauri, there's the nearest star to us, is actually smaller than Jupiter in terms of size, diameter. Not smaller in terms of mass. It's got a lot more mass there, but it's smaller in terms of size. It's actually compacted down even more. So that's actually the nearest star to us. Uh, even smaller, about a hundredth the size of the sun, about the size of the Earth, is Sirius B. Sirius B is the companion to the bright star Sirius that we see. And that's actually a compact, it's what's called a dead star. It's a white dwarf all that's left over of the core of a star after it's gone through its life. So what we'll really be talking about in chapter 12, 13 as we go through the life cycles of a star. This is one of the uh, things that can be left over afterwards. So again, to give you some idea of the sizes, there's Antares. If you recall, Antares was like a couple steps back from Vy Canis Majoris. If you took Antares, there's Mars's orbit well inside it. So that other one, the Vy Canis Majoris, just imagine. I think it goes out close to, close to Saturn's orbit, at least. So if you put it, put it at the center of our solar system, most of the solar system would be inside that. All right. Well, let me introduce this, and then we'll come back and uh, cover it a little bit more on Friday. The Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, something that you're going to see quite a bit of, over the next uh, couple of chapters, between chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and even into 14, as we start talking about galaxies. It's a plot that was made, started about a, about 100 years ago or so. And it's a way to plot and just sort of, you know, if you're going to try to find out patterns of the stars and what goes on with them, you graph things and you look for patterns in them. So a couple of the properties that you could measure about stars were their temperature, that was relatively easy to get. That's what we use now is the spectral classification. So we can measure the O stars. We can determine the spectral class. That's directly related to a temperature. So we can plot temperatures of stars. Very cool stars on the right-hand side. Very hot stars on the left-hand side. Yes, astronomers like to do things backwards, right? Don't you always put the smaller numbers on the left and the bigger numbers on the right? Nah, not when we're doing it. You've got the very hottest stars here and the very coolest stars down here. So you plot the temperature. Another thing you can measure is the luminosity. How bright is the star? This is luminosity is brightness compared to the sun. So the sun, if this is done right, would be one solar unit. It's one solar luminosity. Alpha Centauri is a little bit brighter than the sun. 
You've got some other stars up there that are hundreds, 10,000 times brighter than the sun. So Rigel is many times brighter than the sun. Antares, Betelgeuse, Aldebaran, all the ones that you, names you've heard of there. You have other stars that are much fainter than the sun. So Proxima Centauri, incredibly faint. One ten thousandth the brightness of the sun. So you get a range there. Now when you graph things like that, you want to look for patterns. See any patterns? No? You don't see it. They don't fall along a line or a curve or something. They're just kind of scattered all over the place. So you don't see anything immediately. We're not quite up to the point where we can see the patterns yet. We need more stars. We actually need more stars than just these few to begin to see the patterns that occur. And once we add more stars, these are for 80 stars very close to us. So you'll see that a lot of those bright stars have disappeared. Our sun now is right there, one of the brightest stars uh, of the, among these 80 closest to us. But you start to see a pattern. There aren't many stars up here. It's pretty empty. There aren't too many stars down here until you get way down. There's big empty spots and there's actually a, pa a sequence in the middle where a lot of the stars seem to occur. So we start to begin to see patterns. We see patterns as to where the stars occur when we plot. And all we're doing is plotting the temperature, plotting the luminosity, and seeing where these stars happen to fall. Where do they fall? Where do they happen to come out? And you don't get these many of these very, say, hotter stars that occur you know, over here. You don't get a star like the sun in luminosity that's really hot. You don't get one there that's really cool. You don't find stars all over this diagram. You only find them, for right now, on the main sequence. For among the nearer stars, you find them on the main sequence, mainly uh, further down than the sun towards cooler temperatures. You start to see some down here in what we call the white dwarf region. So these are dead stars. These are the cores left over from stars that have gone through their, their life. So something that the sun will be in five, six billion years, the sun will actually have changed and it will have given off its outer layers and it will end up down here on the HR diagram. So I'm going to come back on Friday. I'm going to go through this in a lot more detail. I just wanted to give you a history of seen it. And then I will go through some of the different areas. And in fact, I have a lab coming up either this Friday or next where you're actually going to make. You actually, to get, you actually get to plot out the points. So give you something to look forward to. So we will come back to that on, on Friday and finish that up. Question?